Um, let's uh, pray, shall we, before I begin. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for all that it teaches us, even in the difficult bits. And Lord, we pray that you would speak to us uh, today by your Holy Spirit as we listen to and apply your word to our hearts. Amen. Well, I don't know if you've ever tried to negotiate with God. You know the sort of thing, if, if I do A, then will you do B for me? It uh, clearly doesn't work, does it? There was a man who climbed to the top of Mount Sinai one day to try and get closer to God, and looking up, he said to God, what does a million years mean to you? And the Lord replied, a minute. The man asked, so what does a million dollars mean to you? And the Lord replied, a penny. And the man asks, Lord, can I have a penny? And the Lord replies, in a minute. (laughs) Negotiating with God uh, clearly doesn't work. Now last week, Jonathan described how heaven touches earth as the Lord and the two angels appeared to Abraham to renew God's promise to him and to Sarah. But here in chapter 19, we see heaven touching earth in a rather different way, in a rather more sinister way, as we see God's judgment falling on Sodom and Gomorrah. And in the second part of chapter 18, we see the first ever recorded prayer in the Bible. And at first sight, it looks like Abraham is trying to negotiate with God. But he's not. What we actually see here is Abraham and Lot, and their two very different approaches to this impending crisis. Now, remember, if you will, that both Abraham and Lot are righteous men. If you like, they were both believers. They were both trying to live good lives before God. But there was a difference, and that difference is the different perspectives that they had on God, which led Abraham, despite his failings, as we've seen over the last few weeks, to walk the path of faith, and Lot, uh, despite his righteousness, to walk the path of compromise. So in chapter 13, Abraham gave Lot the choice as to where to live, and Lot, living by what he could see, chose the fertile plains in the valley below, uh, which happened to be next to these evil cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. Whilst Abraham, living by faith, what he could not see, remembered God's promise and put his trust in that. And now, God's judgment is about to fall on Sodom. And we're going to have a look at how Abraham and Lot respond to this situation in different ways. And then we're going to look at how God responds to Abraham's prayer. So let's begin here with Abraham's prayer. Take a look at verse 20 of chapter 18. It says, Then the Lord said, The outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is so great, and their sin is so grievous, that I will go down and see if what they have done is as bad as the outcry that has reached me. If not, I will know. When the Lord says that to Abraham, Abraham knows the reputation of the cities on the plain. He knows what the Lord will find there. He also knows what the Lord has in mind. So as the men, who we know to be angels, uh, turn away and head towards Sodom in verse 22, Abraham remains standing before the Lord. And here's the first recorded prayer in the Bible, and it turns out to be a prayer of intercession. 
So Abraham, the hero of the faith, the father of the nations, the only man in the whole Old Testament who is called a friend of God, that's in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, he prays on behalf of the city of Sodom. The first prayer in the Bible, Abraham praying for the city of Sodom, that city which epitomizes all that is evil and bad throughout the Bible. Now you may ask, uh, why? And the answer is found in verse 17, where God is found to be talking to himself. And he says to himself, shall I hide from Abraham what I'm about to do? After all, that's not what friends do, is it? No, I mean, friends uh, share secrets with one another, don't they? So God, the friend of Abraham, reveals his plans for justice against Sodom in verse 20. But at the same time, he's reminding himself that Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation, and all nations on earth will be blessed through him. For I have chosen him, says the Lord. You see, the basis of Abraham's prayer is his call. You see, God knows how he's going to act towards Sodom. He has a plan for justice. He also knows that he has called Abraham to be a blessing to the nations, which includes all the people in those cities on the plain. So the amazing fact of this story is that God lets Abraham into his plans and allows him to work with him because of his calling in relation to them. So Abraham can't do anything directly at the moment. In fact, during chapter 18 and 19, Abraham stays up in the hills. He doesn't go anywhere near the plains. He remains a distant observer of the events as they unfold, a bit like we have been to the events unfolding in Japan on our television screens over the last couple of weeks. But Abraham is involved in what's going on here through prayer. God allows his friend Abraham to fulfill his call to be a blessing to those nations through prayer. Now you may say, well, I'm not like Abraham. He was special. He was unique. But actually, no. If you are a Christian here this morning, then you have been called too. You've been called to worship God, called to love others, called to holiness, called to exercise spiritual gifts to build up the church, called to give a reason for what you believe. And that's just the minimum. If God has given you a burden for Bahrain or the the street children in Brazil or, or, or anything else, then you can be sure that you have also been called by God to participate in his plans for those people and those places as well, at the very least through prayer. And that's quite an awesome thought. So why does God involve us? Because if we know Christ then we are a friend of God as much as Abraham ever was, as John 15 tells us, Jesus in John 15 tells us. So God, as your friend, wants to see you fulfill your calling for his, uh, of, his, of your life through, at the very least, prayer. Possibly also direct action, decision, and application of your, your gifts and your talents, but primarily and firstly through prayer. So pray your praises to God. Pray for the love, for love for other people. Pray for holiness. Pray for spiritual gifts. Pray for opportunities to speak to others about your faith. And while you are at it, join up for 111 prayer. We're still quite a few people short of our target of 150 people. Um, so please do that. There's forms at the back of church. It's a struggle. I'm finding it a struggle. 
but we, all can't, we are all called to build up the church, so let's pray for it. And pray also for Bahrain or the street children if that's your specific calling because God wants us all to be involved in his plans for us, for the church, and for the people for whom we have a burden. So let us pray. He's chosen us to be involved. Let's now have a look at the um, content of Abraham's prayer. Verse 22. Abraham remains standing before the Lord. It's almost as if God says to him, what's on your mind, Abraham? And Abraham says, Lord, what will you do? Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you sweep it away and not spare the place for the sake of the 50 righteous people in it? Look down to verse 26, and the Lord says, If I find 50 righteous people in the city of Sodom, I will spare the whole place for their sake. So Abraham gets bolder. In fact, six times he asks. I won't go through them all. Uh, But if there are only 50 people or 45 people, 40, 30, 20, 10 people, 10 righteous people there, will you destroy the whole city, says Abraham. And each time God answers no. Even for the sake of that number, I will not destroy it. So what is going on here? Is Abraham negotiating or bartering with God, as you might barter over a silver teapot in a Moroccan souk? No, because, you see, bartering or negotiating depends on both parties having an element of power. If this is the only silver teapot in the whole market, then the trader has too much power over you, doesn't he? If there are hundreds of silver teapots, then you have the power to be able to go next door and buy one a bit cheaper. And so, the negotiating process can begin. But Abraham, in verse 27, recognizes that we have no right to barter with God. He recognizes his place before God. He says, I am nothing but dust and ashes. Now, the key to understanding the content of this prayer is in verse 25, which is where Abraham says to God, far from, be it from you to do such a thing, to kill the righteous with the wicked, treating the righteous and the wicked alike. Far be it from you. Will not the judge of all the earth do right? In other words, Abraham is scared. You see, he sees those angels going off down the hill towards Sodom, and he remembers that God is very great. And God can destroy those cities if he chooses to. And he remembers that his nephew Lot is living down there with Lottie, his wife. We don't know her real name. (laughs) And Abraham's great nieces. And he's scared about what might happen to them. So he remembers that God is great. But at the same time, he remembers also that God is good and God is gracious. You see, the content of this prayer is all about God's character. And he knows that for the sake of God's glory throughout the earth, he will not prove to be a bad judge. God, you are good. Surely you will not destroy the righteous along the wicked. God, you are gracious. Surely you will provide a way out for my nephew, for my nephew Lot, a righteous man. You see, what is at issue here is Abraham's faith in God as he knows him. Will God live up to his own character? Can God be trusted? Now, my family and I are facing 
an uncertain future at the moment. Where shall we go uh, to serve him next? Which schools will the children end up in? How shall we care for my mum if we end up moving along our way? And many of you are facing uncertainty in, in your lives. Perhaps, particularly in the public sector, many of you are facing uncertainty around your jobs at the moment. Some of you are facing operations or, or issues of ill health. Can God be trusted in these circumstances? Will he live up to his own character? Wouldn't it be nice if we had all the answers now? Wouldn't it be nice if God had said to Abraham about Abraham's first, after Abraham's first question, 50 righteous people, Abraham, you've got to be joking. This is Sodom we're talking about. No, the city will be destroyed, but don't you worry about Lot, Lot and the girls, because here's my plan to save them. It's all going to be okay. But no, Abraham has to feel his way forward with God. If there are 50 righteous people, will they be safe? If there are 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, will they be safe? And that's what we have to do as well. We have to feel our way forward with God. So is, job, is this job the right one? Well, no. Okay then? Well, perhaps the next one will be. Will this operation go right? No. Um, it hasn't. Okay, then perhaps they'll be able to put it right the next time. And gradually the plan unfolds before us. But notice that during the course of this prayer, God's answer remains the same. God never changes. No matter how many times Abraham asks, the answer is always the same. For the sake of those righteous people, I will not destroy them. So what does change? Abraham. By the time God has answered six times, Abraham knows he has the faith. He knows that God will remain true to his character. That's why he doesn't need to go on beyond ten. And that sometimes is the point of our prayer, isn't it? God invites us to be involved in his great plans for our lives and for things happening around the world. But the first thing he does is he changes us. Through our prayers, God wants to give us the faith that we need to be able to rest in God, to be able to trust in him, as Paul would say, in all circumstances. So are you scared by a situation that you are in or a situation you see happening? Then pray and put your trust in the character of God because God is glorious, God is great, God is good, and God is gracious. Let's uh, turn away from Abraham for a moment and let's have a look at what Lot has been doing on his path of compromise. So chapter 19 and verse 1. As the angels enter the city, there is Lot, sat in the gateway to the city, and as soon as he sees these men walk through the gate, he does what Abraham did, and Jonathan described last week in chapter 18. He offers them generous, sacrificial hospitality. He invites them to his home. He gives them a meal and provides them with beds to sleep in, verse 3. What a contrast we see there uh, to the men who later gather outside of the house who just want to take advantage of these visitors and abuse them for sex. You see, Lot is a righteous man who, according to 2 Peter, was tormented by the lawless deeds he saw around him every day. And yet you see from verse 9 that Lot also had a a position to keep up in this society. The men came to taunt him, and they said, you came here as an alien, 
as an illegal immigrant. And now you want to play judge over us? You see, Lot has worked his way up from illegal immigrant to, to, to leader or judge over these people. And he's anxious to maintain his precarious position in what is actually quite a hostile culture. So Lot does what many of us would do in those circumstances. He tries to do a deal with them. He says, no, my friends, notice that, my friends, who's Lot's, uh, who are Lot's friends? Look, don't do this wicked thing. Take my two daughters instead. Now, it's a bad idea, isn't it? And it's not what the men want anyway. But that's what we notice about Lot's actions throughout this chapter. He just can't resist trying to get himself out of trouble. So first he tries to negotiate with the men outside, the mob outside. Secondly, in verse 16, when the angels say, hurry, hurry, get out of here, Lot hesitates. Perhaps he looks around him and thinks, look at this lovely house I've built up with a spacious living room and it's ensuite bathrooms. Look at my position in the city. I'm a leader, a respected citizen. He hesitates and thinks, I don't want to become a nomad again. I don't want to go back and live in tents. I've done well here. Perhaps this is the best place for me and my family. He feels safer in the city. And thirdly, in in verse 20, even as he's escaping, he can't resist negotiating with the angels about his escape route, can he? He doesn't want to go into the hills. He wants to stop off in a small town called Zor. Think about those British people who were plucked out of Libya recently by Hercules' transporter plane. What if some of them had started arguing with the embassy staff and saying, "Is is there a free newspaper? Is there champagne on this flight? I only ever travel first class. It'd be ridiculous, wouldn't it? But Lot, in these circumstances, thinks that he knows best, doesn't he? Now, thankfully, in his situation, God's angels are there to protect him. So first, they pull him back back inside the house. They blind the attackers outside the door so they can't find their way in. Then as Lot hesitates, the angels physically grab hold of him. They bundle him out of the door, and they lead him safely out of the city. And then finally, when he is allowed to stay in Zor, the angels destroy the rest of the plane, making, keeping Zor safe. But then in verse 30, we see that Lot has made his way up to the mountains in any case. He's settled in the cave. It's a far cry from the house down below in the plains. Uh, it's a far cry even from the tents that he once enjoyed in the desert. But it is where he was told to go by the angels in the first place. And he's finally realized it. See, Lot hesitated because he didn't trust God. He thought he knew best. And Lot's wife, well, she was even further gone, wasn't she? She looked back, and she turned into a pillar of salt. At which point, a boy in a Sunday school class raised his hand and said, my mummy looked back once when she was driving out of the city, and she turned into a lamppost. (laughs) And another one said, if Lot was told to take his wife and flee out of the city and his wife turned to a pillar of salt, what happened to the flea? <laughs> a slight more subtle. Well, I speak to myself as much as to you. Why do we hesitate? Why do we argue with God and try to find a better way of doing things? Why are we so double-minded? You know, as I woke up this morning, I was worrying about certain things, and I simply had to repeat to myself in prayer, God is glorious. God is great, God is good, and God is gracious. 
Sometimes we just have to make that the content of our prayers. Perhaps we can't even pray anything else, but we need to pray about the character of God. Let us believe in a God who is glorious, who is great, who is good, and who is gracious. So lastly, what is God's response to Abraham's prayer? And we see that it's simply what Abraham expected of him all along. He behaved according to his own character. He behaved righteously because God is good. And he behaved mercifully because God is full of grace. So he behaved righteously. The city is destroyed. But it was no arbitrary judgment, was it? There is lack of hospitality. There is homosexual practice. There is violence. There is sexual exploitation. Sodom was ultimately destroyed because once Lot and his family had been taken out of the city, there were no righteous people left in it. I still remember the uh, sting of being incorrectly accused by my RE teacher at Earlham School. It always has to be the RE teacher, doesn't it? It wasn't me swearing outside his classroom. It was another boy. But he jumped to the conclusion because I was the first person he saw when he popped his head out the window. Fortunately, God is not like that. The angels were sent there to see for themselves whether the wickedness of Sodom was as bad as people had said. God's judgments are always right. Sin cannot be overlooked. But is it fair? Is it fair that judgment should fall on this one area at this one point in time? But no doubt there are other places in the world which were, had equally wicked men, and perhaps there are other generations where there is equal wickedness. Well, yes and no. It is fair that God should judge the wicked. If God is good, he must judge the wicked. The fact that he doesn't do constantly or instantly is a matter of his, his mercy, not of any injustice. See, if you go to where Sodom and Gomorrah are supposed to have once stood today, then you will see nothing whatsoever. And Jude, uh, Jude, verse 7, says that these cities serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. 2 Peter 2 says that God condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah by burning them to ashes and made them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. And Luke 17, 32, Jesus says, Remember Lot's wife. Whoever tries to keep his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. Ultimately, it is completely fair, because the Bible teaches that everybody will be judged and held accountable before God in the end. Hebrews 9 and 27 says that human beings are destined to die once, and after that to face judgment. So is it fair for God to give us a reminder of what we will all face at the end of our lives? It is surely more than fair. In fact, it is merciful to warn us. Now, at this point, I think I should say, and I guess it's almost inevitable that as we read Genesis 19, some of you might be thinking about the situation in Japan at the moment, as we read about cities being overthrown, overthrown as people escaping to the mountains, plumes of smoke rising from the cities. And perhaps we're tempted to draw parallels between what's happening there and and what God is saying here about judgment. But actually, I don't think the Bible allows us to draw those conclusions about natural disasters. Jesus told the people listening to him in Luke 13 that the Tower of Siloam had fallen over and killed 18 people. But Jesus was very clear. He said that is not because they were more sinful than any others. 
is simply that the tower fell over. So face of any natural disaster is that God's judgment. I think our standard answer should be we just don't know. But here in Genesis 18 and 19, it's different because the Bible tells us exactly what was going on and why. And what we learn is that God will act with righteousness as the judge of all the earth. God, however, is also gracious and he will act with mercy. Why? Because verse 29 says, So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his daughters were saved. Lot was a hopelessly compromised righteous man. His daughters weren't very much better, as we shall see next week. It was not their silly attempts to look after themselves that saved them. But it was Abraham's prayer. God remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of this catastrophe. So God, the judge of all the earth, will hear our prayers. Our prayers are powerful and effective if we learn to pray with the, God, with the faith that Abraham had and put our trust in God's character. So let's pray as we end. Lord, you are the judge of all the earth, and our lot in life is to die and to face judgment. However, we praise you, Lord, that you are a Lord who shows love and mercy, and you are good, and your judgment is always fair. Lord, we pray uh, for all the people that we know. Lord, we place them in your hands. We pray, Lord, that you would pull them out uh, of disaster and catastrophe before it overcomes them. Lord, we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.